scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. James Bond suddenly knew that he was tired. He always acted on this knowledge. It helped him to avoid staleness and the sensual bluntness that breeds mistakes. He shifted himself unobtrusively away from the roulette he had been playing and went to stand for a moment at the brass rail which surrounded the top table in the salle privée. Le Chiffre was still playing and still apparently winning. In the shadow of his thick left arm there nestled a discreet stack of big yellow plaques worth half a million francs each. Bond watched the curious, impressive profile for a time, and then he shrugged his shoulders to lighten his thoughts and moved away. He imagined tomorrow's regular morning meeting of the casino committee. Uh, Monsieur Le Chiffre made two million. He played his usual game. Miss Fairchild made a million in an hour and then left. She played with coolness. Uh, Monsieur Le Vicomte de Villerin made one million too at roulette. He was lucky. Then the Englishman, Mr. Bond, increased his winnings to exactly three million over the two days. It seems that he is persevering, and he has luck. Merci, Monsieur Xavier. Merci, Monsieur le Président. Or something like that, thought Bond, as he pushed his way through the swing doors of the salle privée and nodded to the bored man in evening clothes, whose job it is to bar your entry and your exit with the electric footswitch, which can lock the doors at any hint of trouble. He breathed the sweet night air deeply and focused his senses and his wits. He wanted to know if anyone had searched his room since he had left it before dinner. He walked across the broad boulevard and through the gardens to the Hotel Splendide. He smiled at the concierge who gave him his key, number 45 on the first floor, and took the cable from her. It was from Jamaica and read, Bond, Splendide, Royal Les Eaux. Inferior Havana Cigar Production, All Cuban Factories. Ten million. Repeat, ten million. Stop. Hope this figure you require. Regards. Da Silva. This meant that ten million francs was on the way to him. It was the reply to a request Bond had sent that afternoon through Paris to his headquarters in London, asking for more funds. Clements, the head of Bond's department, had spoken to M., who had smiled wryly and told the broker to fix it with the treasury. Bond took his key and said good night and turned to the stairs, shaking his head at the liftman. Bond knew what an obliging danger signal a lift could be. He didn't expect anyone to be moving on the first floor, but he preferred to be prudent. Walking quietly up on the balls of his feet, he turned off the stairs into the corridor and walked softly to the door of his room. Bond knew exactly where the switch was, and it was with one flow of motion that he stood on the threshold, with the door full open, the light on, and a gun in his hand. The safe, empty room sneered at him. Locking himself in, he bent down and inspected one of his own black hairs, which still lay undisturbed where he had left it before dinner, wedged into the drawer of the writing desk. Next, he examined a faint trace of talcum powder on the inner rim of the porcelain handle of the clothes cupboard. It appeared immaculate. He went into the bathroom, lifted the cover of the lavatory system, and verified the level of the water against a small scratch on the copper ballcock. Doing all this, inspecting these minute burglar alarms, 
did not make him feel foolish or self-conscious. He was a secret agent, and still alive thanks to his exact attention to the detail of his profession. Satisfied that his room had not been searched while he was at the casino, Bond undressed and took a cold shower. Then he lit his seventieth cigarette of the day and sat down at the writing table with the thick wad of his stake money and winnings beside him and entered some figures in a small notebook. Over the two days' play, he was up exactly three million francs. For a few moments, Bond sat motionless, gazing out of the window across the dark sea. Then he shoved the bundle of banknotes under the pillow of the ornate single bed, cleaned his teeth, turned out the lights, and climbed with relief between the harsh French sheets. His last action was to slip his right hand under the pillow until it rested under the butt of the thirty-eight Colt police positive with the sawn barrel. Then he slept, and with the warmth and humour of his eyes extinguished, his features relapsed into a taciturn mask, ironical, brutal, and cold. Two weeks before, this memorandum had gone from Station S of the Secret Service to M, who was then, and is today, head of this adjunct to the British Defence Ministries. To M, from Head of S. Subject, a project for the destruction of Monsieur Le Chiffre, alias The Number, Herr Numa, Herr Ziffer, etc., one of the opposition's chief agents in France, and undercover paymaster of the Syndicat des Ouvriers d'Alsace, the communist-controlled trade union in the heavy and transport industries of Alsace, and, as we know, an important fifth column in the event of war with Redland. We have been feeling for some time that Le Chiffre is getting into deep water. It seems that he is on the brink of a financial crisis. Certain straws in the wind were noticed by Agent 1860, some discreet sales of jewellery, the disposal of a villa at Antibes, and a general tendency to check the loose spending, which has always been a feature of his way of life. But further inquiries were made with the help of our friends of the Douzième Bureau, with whom we have been working jointly on this case, and a curious story has come to light. In January 1946, Le Chiffre bought control of a chain of brothels, known as the Cordon Jaune, operating in Normandy and Brittany. He was foolish enough to employ for this purpose some fifty million francs of the monies entrusted to him by Leningrad Section 3 for the financing of SODA, the trade union mentioned above. Barely three months later, on the 13th of April, there was passed in France Law Number no. 46685, known popularly as La Loi Matrichard, closing all houses of ill fame and forbidding the sale of pornographic books and films. This knocked the bottom out of his investment almost overnight. Suddenly Le Chiffre was faced with a serious deficit in his union funds. Today, nothing remains of Le Chiffre's original investment, and any routine inquiry would reveal a deficit of around 50 million francs in the trade union funds, of which he is the treasurer and paymaster. It does not seem that the suspicions of Leningrad have been aroused yet, but, unfortunately for Le Chiffre, it is possible that at any rate Smirsch is on the scent. 
Last week, a high-grade source of Station P reported that a senior official of this efficient organ of Soviet vengeance had left Warsaw for Strasbourg via the eastern sector of Berlin. If Le Chiffre knew that Smirsch was on his tail or that they had the smallest suspicion of him, he would have no alternative but to commit suicide or attempt to escape. But his present plan suggests that while he is certainly desperate, he does not yet realize that his life may be at stake. It is these rather spectacular plans of his that have suggested to us a counter-operation which, though risky and unconventional, we submit at the end of this memorandum with confidence. In brief, Le Chiffre plans, we believe, to follow the example of most other desperate till-robbers and make good the deficit in his accounts by gambling. We know that he has taken a small villa in the neighbourhood of Royal les eaux just north of Dieppe, for a week from a fortnight tomorrow. It is here that Le Chiffre will, we are confident, endeavour on or after the 15th of June to make a profit at Bacherat of 50 million francs on a working capital of 25 million and, incidentally, save his life. A proposed counter-operation It will be greatly in the interests of this country and of the other nations of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization that this powerful Soviet agent should be ridiculed and destroyed, that his communist trade union should be bankrupted and brought into disrepute, and that this potential fifth column with a strength of 50,000, capable in time of war of controlling a wide sector of France's northern frontier, should lose faith and cohesion. All this would result if Le Chiffre could be defeated at the tables. The envy, assassination is pointless. Leningrad would quickly cover up his defalcations and make him into a martyr. We therefore recommend that the finest gambler available to the service should be given the necessary funds and endeavour to out-gamble this man. Signed, S. Head of S, the section of the Secret Service concerned with the Soviet Union, was so keen on his plan for the destruction of Le Chiffre that he took the memorandum himself and went up to the top floor of the gloomy building overlooking Regent's Park. He walked belligerently up to M's chief of staff. Now look here, Bill, I want to sell something to the chief. Is this a good moment? What do you think, Penny? The chief of staff turned to M's private secretary, who shared the room with him. Miss Moneypenny would have been desirable, but for eyes which were cool and direct and quizzical. Should be all right. He won a bit of a victory at the F.O. this morning, and he's not got anyone for the next half an hour. She smiled encouragingly at head of S. The chief of staff crossed his office, docket in hand, and went through the double doors leading into M's room. In a moment... He came out, and over the entrance a small blue light burned the warning that M was not to be disturbed. James Bond's interview with M had been short. What about it, Bond? Bond looked across the desk into the shrewd, clear eyes. It's very kind of you, sir. I'd like to do it. But I can't promise to win. The odds at Baccarat are the best after trente et quarante, but I might get a bad run against me and get cleaned out. 007 prepares for the big game with Le Chiffre and meets his lovely assistant, the girl from HQ, Miss Lind, and he's not too pleased about it. Alex Jennings reads Ian Fleming's Casino Royale. <laughs>
Two weeks after his interview with M, James Bond awoke in his room at the Hotel Splendide. He had arrived at Royal Les Eaux in time for luncheon two days before. There had been no attempt to contact him, and there had been no flicker of curiosity when he had signed the register, James Bond, Port Maria, Jamaica. M had expressed no interest in his cover. Once you start to make a set at Le Chiffre at the tables, you'll have had it, he said. But wear a cover that will stick with the general public. Bond knew Jamaica well, so he asked to be controlled from there and to pass as a Jamaican plantocrat whose father had made his pile in tobacco and sugar and whose son chose to play it away on the stock markets and in casinos. Bond had spent the last two afternoons and most of the nights at the casino playing complicated progression systems on the even chances at roulette. He had made some three million francs and had given his nerves and card sense a thorough workout. He had got the geography of the casino clear in his mind. Above all, he had been able to observe Le Chiffre at the tables and to note ruefully that he was a faultless and lucky gambler. Bond liked to make a good breakfast. After a cold shower, he looked out at the beautiful day and consumed half a pint of iced orange juice, three scrambled eggs and bacon, and a double portion of coffee without sugar. He lit his first cigarette, a Balkan and Turkish mixture made for him by Morlands of Grosvenor Street, and watched the small waves lick the long seashore. He was lost in his thoughts when the telephone rang. It was the concierge announcing that a director of Radio Stangtor was waiting below with the wireless set he had ordered from Paris. Of course, said Bond. Send him up. This was the cover fixed by the Deuxième Bureau for their liaison man with Bond. Bond watched the door, hoping that it would be Matisse. When Matisse came in, a respectable businessman carrying a large square parcel by its leather handle, Bond smiled broadly and would have greeted him with warmth if Matisse had not frowned and held up his free hand after carefully closing the door. I have just arrived from Paris, monsieur, and here is the set you asked to have on approval. Bond lifted his eyebrows at this mystery-making. Matisse paid no attention. He placed the set, which he had unwrapped, on the floor beside the unlit panel electric fire below the mantelpiece. It is just past eleven, he said, and I see that the compagnon de la chanson should now be on the medium wave from Rome. Let us see what the reception is like. It should be a fair test. Matisse winked. He fiddled at the back of the set. Suddenly an appalling roar of static filled the small room. Oh, my dear monsieur, forgive me, please. Badly tuned. And he again bent to the dials. After a few adjustments, the close harmony of the French came over the air, and Matisse walked up and clapped Bond very hard on the back and wrung his hand until Bond's fingers ached. My dear friend, Matisse was delighted. You are blown, blown, blown. Up there, he pointed at the ceiling. At this moment, either Monsieur Muntz or his alleged wife, allegedly bedridden with the grip, is deafened, absolutely deafened, and I hope in agony. He grinned with pleasure at Bond's frown of disbelief. Then he became serious. How it has happened, I don't know. They must have been on to you for several days before you arrived. The opposition is here in real strength. 
This is an old-fashioned hotel. There are disused chimneys behind these electric fires, just here. He pointed a few inches above the panel fire. He suspended a very powerful radio pickup. The wires run up the chimney to behind the Munsee's electric fire, where there is an amplifier. Some of this we knew because in France we are very clever. The rest we confirmed by unscrewing your electric fire a few hours before you got here. Suspiciously, Bond walked over and examined the screws which secured the panel to the wall. Their grooves showed minute scratches. No, to business, said Matisse, before our good compagnon ran out of breath. First of all, you will be pleased with your number two. She is very beautiful. Bond frowned. Very beautiful indeed. Satisfied with Bond's reaction, Matisse continued. She has black hair, blue eyes, and uh, splendid um, protuberances, and she is a wireless expert, which, though sexually less interesting, makes her a perfect employee of Radio Stantor and assistant to myself in my capacity as wireless salesman for this rich summer season down here. Bond was not amused. What the hell do they want to send me a woman for? He said bitterly. Do they think this is a bloody picnic? Calm yourself, my dear James. She's as cold as an icicle. Her cover's perfect, and I have arranged for her to team up with you quite smoothly. What is more natural than that you should pick up a pretty girl here, as a Jamaican millionaire? He coughed respectfully. What with your hot blood and all, you would look naked without one. Bond grunted dubiously. Any other surprises? He asked suspiciously. Nothing very much, answered Matisse. Le Chiffre is installed in his villa. It's about ten miles down the coast road. He has his two guards with him. They look pretty capable fellows. Anything else? asked Bond. No. Come to the bar of the Hermitage before lunch. I'll fix the introduction. Ask her to dinner this evening. Then it will be natural for her to come into the casino with you. I'll be there too, but in the background. Oh, and there's an American called Leiter here, staying in the hotel. Felix Leiter. He is the CIA chap from Fontainebleau. London told me to tell you. He looks okay. May come in useful. A torrent of Italian burst from the wireless set on the floor. Mattis switched it off, and they exchanged some phrases about the set and about how Bond should pay for it. Then, with effusive farewells and a final wink, Mattis bowed himself out. Bond sighed. Women were for recreation. On a job, they got in the way and fogged things up with sex and hurt feelings. Bitch, said Bond. Then, remembering the Munces, he said, Bitch again, more loudly, and walked out of the room. It was twelve o'clock when Bond left the Splendide, and the clock on the Marie was stumbling through its midday carillon. There was something splendid about the Negresco Baroque of the Casino Royale, a strong whiff of Victorian elegance and luxury. Against the background of this luminous and sparkling stage, Bond stood in the sunshine and felt his mission to be incongruous and remote. He shrugged away the momentary feeling of unease and walked round the back of his hotel and down the ramp to the garage. Before his rendezvous at the Hermitage, he decided to take his car down the coast road and have a quick look at Le Chiffre's villa. Bond's car was his only personal hobby. 
one of the last of the four-and-a-half-litre Bentleys with the supercharger by Amherst Villas. He had bought it almost new in 1933 and had kept it in careful storage through the war. Bond drove it hard and well and with an almost sensual pleasure. He eased the car out of the garage and up the ramp and soon the loitering drumbeat of the two-inch exhaust was echoing down the tree-lined boulevard through the crowded main street of the little town and off through the sand dunes to the south. An hour later, Bond walked into the Hermitage Bar and chose a table near one of the broad windows. He ordered an Americano and examined the sprinkling of overdressed customers, mostly from Paris, he guessed, who sat talking with focus and vivacity, creating that theatrically clubbable atmosphere of l'heure de l'apéritif. Bond's eye was caught by the tall figure of Matisse on the pavement outside. His face turned in animation to a dark-haired girl in grey. Bond waited for them to come through the street door into the bar, but for appearance's sake continued to stare out of the window at the passers-by. But surely it is Monsieur Bond! Matisse's voice behind him was full of surprised delight. Bond, appropriately flustered, rose to his feet. May I present my colleague, Mademoiselle Linde? My dear, this is a gentleman from Jamaica with whom I had the pleasure of doing business this morning. Bond inclined himself with a reserved friendliness. It would be a great pleasure. He addressed himself to the girl. I am alone. Would you both care to join me? He pulled out a chair, and while they sat down, he beckoned to a waiter and, despite Mattis's expostulations, insisted on ordering the drinks. Matisse and Bond exchanged cheerful talk about the fine weather. The girl was silent. She accepted one of Bond's cigarettes and then smoked it appreciatively, drawing the smoke deeply into her lungs with a little sigh and then exhaling it casually through her lips and nostrils. Her movements were economical and precise with no trace of self-consciousness. Bond felt her presence strongly. While he and Matisse talked, he turned from time to time towards her, politely including her in the conversation, but adding up the impressions recorded by each glance. Her hair was very black, and she wore it cut square and low on the nape of the neck, framing her face to below the clear and beautiful line of her jaw. Although it was heavy and moved with the movements of her head, she did not constantly pat it back into place, but let it alone. Her eyes were wide apart and deep blue, and they gazed candidly back at Bond with a touch of ironical disinterest which, to his annoyance, he found he would like to shatter, roughly. Bond was excited by her beauty and intrigued by her composure. The prospect of working with her stimulated him. At the same time, he felt a vague disquiet. On an impulse, he touched wood. Matisse had noticed Bond's preoccupation. After a time, he rose. Oh, forgive me, he said to the girl. I must arrange my rendezvous for dinner tonight. Are you sure you won't mind being left to your own devices this evening? Bond took the cue, and as Matisse crossed the room to the telephone booth beside the bar... 007's after a man named Le Chiffre, and the stakes are high. The reader is Alex Jennings. <laughs> When Bond left the bar, he walked purposefully along the pavement flanking the tree-lined boulevard towards his hotel a few hundred yards away. 
There were few people abroad, and the two men standing quietly under a tree on the opposite side of the boulevard looked out of place. Each wore a straw hat, and they had the appearance of a variety turn waiting for a bus on the way to the theatre. Incongruously, each dark, squat little figure was illuminated by a touch of bright colour, a bright red and a bright blue camera case slung from the shoulder. By the time Bond had taken in these details, he had come to within fifty yards of the two men. He was reflecting on the possibilities of cover when an extraordinary and terrible scene was enacted. Red Man seemed to give a short nod to Blue Man. Blue Man, and Bond could not see exactly as the trunk of a plane tree obscured his vision, bent forward and seemed to fiddle with his camera case. Then, with a blinding flash of white light, there was the ear-splitting crack of a monstrous explosion, and Bond, despite the protection of the tree trunk, was slammed down to the pavement by a bolt of hot air. He lay, gazing up at the sun, while the air went on twanging with the explosion, as if someone had hit the bass register of a piano with a sledgehammer. When dazed and half-conscious, he raised himself on one knee. A ghastly rain of pieces of flesh and shreds of blood-soaked clothing fell on him. The road was a smoking crater. Of the two men in straw hats, there remained absolutely nothing. Bond felt himself starting to vomit. It was Mattis who got to him first, and by that time Bond was standing with his arm round the tree which had saved his life. He allowed Mattis to lead him off towards the splendide from which guests and servants were pouring in chattering fright. They managed to push through the throng and along the corridor to Bond's room. Mattis paused only to turn on the radio in front of the fireplace, then, while Bond stripped off his blood-flecked clothes, Mattis sprayed him with questions. Merde, but you are lucky he said when Bond had finished. Clearly the bomb was intended for you. They intended to throw it and then dodge behind their tree. But it all came out the other way around. Never mind. We will discover the facts. His eyes glittered. Now, get a drink and some lunch and a rest, he ordered Bond. For me, I must get my nose quickly into this affair before the police have muddied the trail with their big black boots. He turned off the radio and waved an affectionate farewell. Bond sat for a while by the window and enjoyed being alive. Bond had always been a gambler. He loved the dry riffle of the cards and the constant, unemphatic drama of the quiet figures round the green tables. He was amused by the impartiality of the roulette ball and of the playing cards and their eternal bias. On this June evening, when Bond walked into the Salle Privée, it was with a sensation of confidence and cheerful anticipation that he changed a million francs into plaque of fifty mille and took a seat next to the chef de partie at roulette table number one. Bond borrowed the chef's card and studied the run of the ball since the session had started at three o'clock that afternoon. He always did this, although he knew that each turn of the wheel, each fall of the ball into a numbered slot, has absolutely no connection with its predecessor. He accepted that the game begins afresh each time the croupier picks up the ivory ball and gives one of the four spokes of the wheel a controlled twist clockwise. Bond decided to play one of his favourite gambits and back the first two dozen numbers, each with the maximum, 100,000 francs. After seven coups, 
He had won six times. His net profit was 400,000 francs. He kept off the table for the eighth throw. Zero turned up. This piece of luck cheered him further, and he decided to back the first and last dozens until he had lost twice. Ten throws later, he rose from the table, one million francs to the good. Directly Bond had started playing in maximums. His game had become the centre of interest at the table. An American had shown more than the usual friendliness and pleasure at his winning streak. When Bond rose, he too pushed back his chair and called cheerfully across the table. Thanks for the ride. Guess I owe you a drink. Uh, will you join me? Bond had a feeling that this might be the CIA man. My name's Felix Leiter, said the American. Glad to meet you. Mine's Bond. James Bond. Bond insisted on ordering Leiter's Hague and Hague on the rocks, and then he looked carefully at the barman. A dry martini, he said. One, in a deep champagne goblet. Oui, monsieur. Just a moment. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lillet. Shake it very well until it's ice cold, then add a large thin slice of lemon peel. Got it? Certainly, monsieur. The barman seemed pleased with the idea. Gosh, that's certainly a drink, said Leiter. Bond laughed. <laughs> when I'm uh, concentrating, he explained, I never have more than one drink before dinner. But I do like that one to be large and very strong and very cold and very well made. This drink's my own invention. I'm going to patent it, when I can think of a good name. Leiter lowered his voice. You'd better call it the Molotov cocktail after the one you tasted this afternoon. Bond laughed. They sat down. I'm glad to be working with you on this job, Leiter said. Our people are definitely interested. In fact, Washington's pretty sick. We're not running the show. Anyway, I'm under your orders, and I'm to give you any help you ask for. I'm delighted you are, said Bond. I'd be grateful if you'd stick around the casino this evening. I've got an assistant, a Miss Lind, and I'd like to hand her over to you when I start playing. You won't be ashamed of her. She's a good-looking girl. He smiled at Leiter. And you might mark Le Chiffre's two gunmen. I can't imagine he'll try a roughhouse, but you never know. They parted company after arranging to see each other at the casino at around half-past ten or eleven, the usual hour for the high tables to begin play. As Bond tied his thin, double-ended black satin tie, he paused for a moment and examined himself levelly in the mirror. His grey-blue eyes looked calmly back with a hint of ironical inquiry. He opened a drawer and took out a light, chamois leather holster and slipped it over his left shoulder so that it hung about three inches below his armpit. He slipped his single-breasted dinner jacket over his heavy silk evening shirt, verified in the mirror that there was absolutely no sign of the flat gun under his left arm, gave a final pull at his narrow tie, and walked out of the door and locked it. When he turned at the foot of the short stairs towards the bar, he heard the lift door open behind him, and a cool voice call, Good evening. It was the girl. He had remembered her beauty exactly. He was not surprised to be thrilled by it again. Her dress was of black velvet, and there was a thin necklace of diamonds at her throat. 
Bond's heart lifted. You look absolutely lovely. Business must be good in the radio world. She put her arm through his. Do you mind if we go straight into dinner? She asked. I want to make a grand entrance. And the truth is, there's a horrible secret about black velvet. It marks when you sit down. Of course. Let's go straight in. In her wake, he watched the heads of the diners turn to look at her. As they deciphered the maze of purple ink which covered the menu, Bond beckoned to the sommelier. A small carafe of vodka, very cold, Bond ordered. He said to her abruptly, I can't drink the health of your new frock without knowing your Christian name. Vespa, she said. Bond gave her a look of inquiry. I was born on a very stormy evening, according to my parents, she smiled. Some people like it, others don't. I'm just used to it. I think it's a fine name, said Bond. An idea struck him. Can I borrow it? He explained about the special martini he had invented. The Vespa, he said. It's very appropriate to the violet hour when my cocktail will now be drunk all over the world. We'll have one together when all this is finished. Win or lose. And now, here's luck for tonight, Vespa. Yes, said the girl quietly, as she held up her small glass and looked at him with a curious directness straight in the eyes. Then she leant impulsively towards him. I have some news for you from Mattis. He was longing to tell you himself. It's about the bomb. Bon looked round, but there was no possibility of being overheard. Tell me. His eyes glittered with interest. Apparently the men were part of a pool held in France for this sort of job, saboteurs, thugs, and so on. She took a sip of vodka. The agent who briefed them gave them the two camera cases you saw. He told them that the blue case contained a very powerful smoke bomb. The red case was the explosive. They would escape under cover of the smoke. In fact, both cases contained an identical high-explosive bomb. The idea was to destroy you and the bomb-throwers without trace. Go on, said Bond, full of admiration for the ingenuity of the double cross. Well, apparently the men decided to take no chances. It would be better, they thought, to touch off the smoke bomb first, and, of course, they both went up together. A third man was waiting behind the Splendide to pick his two friends up. When he saw what had happened, he assumed they had bungled. But the police picked up some fragments of the unexploded red bomb, and he was confronted with them. When he saw that they had been tricked, he started to talk. But there's nothing to link all this with Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre's name means absolutely nothing to the one who survived. She finished her story just as the waiters arrived with caviar and a mound of hot toast. Incidentally, Bond asked, how did you come to get mixed up in this affair? What section are you in? Well, now we return to Ian Fleming's very first story featuring James Bond, Casino Royale. Bond is at the Baccarat table, but will it be his enemy, Le Chiffre, who has the winning hand? The reader is Alex Jennings. Bond explained to Vesper just how Baccarat is played. What happens is this. The banker announces an opening bank of 500,000 francs. The player next to the banker, or number one, can accept this bet and push his money out onto the table or pass it. 
Then number two has the right to take it, and if he refuses, then number three, and so on round the table. If no single player takes it all, the bet is offered to the table as a whole, and everyone chips in, including sometimes the spectators round the table, until the five hundred thousand is made up. Though when it gets to a million or two, it's often difficult to find a taker. At that moment, I shall always try and step in and accept the bet. In fact, I shall attack the chief's bank. Whenever I get a chance, until either I bust his bank, or he's bust me, it may take some time. But in the end, one of us is bound to break the other, irrespective of the other players at the table. Bond drank some champagne and continued. The object of the game is to hold two or three cards, which together count nine points, or as nearly nine as possible. Court cards and tens count nothing. Aces one each. Any other card, it's face value. When the banker deals me my two cards, if they add up to eight or nine, they're a natural. In the end, Bond stubbed out his cigarette and called for the bill. It's the natural eights and nines that matter, and I must just see that I get more of them than he does. While telling the story of the game and anticipating the coming fight, Bond's face had lit up again. The prospect of at least getting to grips with Le Chiffre stimulated him and quickened his pulse. He seemed to have completely forgotten the brief coolness between them, and Vesper was relieved and entered into his mood. He paid the bill and gave a handsome tip to the sommelier. Vesper rose and led the way out of the restaurant and out onto the steps of the hotel. The big Bentley was waiting, and Bond drove Vesper over, parking as close to the entrance as he could. As they walked through the ornate anterooms, he hardly spoke. She saw his nostrils were slightly flared. In other respects, he seemed completely at ease, acknowledging cheerfully the greetings of the casino functionaries. Before they had penetrated very far into the main room, Felix Leiter detached himself from one of the roulette tables and greeted Bond as an old friend. After being introduced to Vesper Lind and exchanging a few remarks, Leiter said, "Well, since you're playing baccarat this evening, will you allow me to show Miss Lind how to break the bank at roulette?" Then perhaps we could come and watch you when your game starts to warm up. Bond excused himself. You will be in excellent hands with my friend Felix Leiter. He gave a short smile which embraced them both. Then he strolled slowly across the room between the thronged tables until he came to the top of the room where the broad baccarat table waited behind the brass rail. The chef de partie lifted the velvet-covered chain. I've kept number six as you wished, Monsieur Bond. Bond sat down with a nod to the players on his right and left. Opposite him, the banker's chair was vacant. He glanced round the table. He knew most of the players by sight, but few of their names. At number nine, there was Lord Danvers, a distinguished but weak-looking man whose francs were presumably provided by his rich American wife, a middle-aged woman with the predatory mouth of a barracuda, who sat at number three. At number one, to the right of the bank, was a well-known Greek gambler who owned a profitable shipping line. Number two was Carmel Delane, the American film star with alimony from three husbands to burn. Numbers four and five were a Mr. and Mrs. Dupont. They both had a business-like look about them. Bond had just finished his sketchy summing up of the players when Le Chiffre, with the silence and economy of movement of a big fish, came through the opening in the brass rail and took his place directly opposite Bond 
in the banker's chair. As the croupier fitted six packs of cards with one swift exact motion into the metal and wooden shoe, Le Chiffre said something quietly to him. Messieurs, mesdames, les jeux sont faits. Un banco de cinq cent mille. Le Chiffre crouched over the shoe. He gave it a short, deliberate slap to settle the cards. Then, with a thick white forefinger, he pressed gently on the pink tongue and slipped out the first card six inches or a foot towards the Greek at number one. Then he slipped out a card for himself, then another for the Greek, then one more for himself. He sat, immobile, not touching his own cards. He looked at the Greek's face. With his flat wooden spatula, like a long bricklayer's trowel, the croupier delicately lifted up the Greek's two cards. He dropped them with a quick movement, so that they lay just before the Greek's pale, hairy hands, which lay inert like two watchful pink crabs on the table. The two pink crabs scuttled out together, and the Greek gathered the cards into his wide left hand, and cautiously bent his head so that he could see, in the shadow made by his cupped hand, the value of the bottom of the two cards. His face was quite impassive. Then he lifted his head and looked Le Chiffre in the eye. No, said the Greek flatly. Le Chiffre picked up his two cards and turned them face upwards on the table with a faint snap. They were a four and a five, an undefeatable natural nine. He had won. Neuf à la banque quietly, said the croupier. With his spatula, he faced the Greek's two cards. Elisette, he said unemotionally, lifting up gently the corpses of the seven and queen, and slipping them through the wide slot in the table near his chair, to which all dead cards are consigned. The Greek pushed forward five plaques of one hundred thousand, and the croupier added these to Le Chiffre's half-million plaque, which lay in the centre of the table. The croupier announced quietly, Un banco de million. Suivi, murmured the Greek, meaning that he exercised his right to follow up his lost bet. Bond lit a cigarette and settled himself in his chair. The Greek, after taking a third card, could achieve no better than a four to the bank seven. Un banco de deux millions, said the croupier. The players on Bond's left remained silent. Banco, said Bond. Le Chiffre looked incuriously at him, the whites of his eyes, which showed all round the irises, lending something impassive and doll-like to his gaze. The other players sensed a tension between the two gamblers, and there was silence as Le Chiffre fingered the four cards out of the shoe. The croupier slipped Bond's two cards across to him. Bond, still with his eyes holding Le Chiffre's, reached his right hand out a few inches, glanced down very swiftly, then, as he looked up again impassively at Le Chiffre, with a disdainful gesture, he tossed the cards face upwards on the table. They were a four and a five, an unbeatable nine. There was a little gasp of envy from the table, and the players to the left of Bond exchanged rueful glances at their failure to accept the two-million-franc bet. With a hint of a shrug, Le Chiffre slowly faced his own two cards and flicked them away with his fingernail. They were two valueless knaves. Le Baccarat, intoned the croupier, as he spaded the thick chips over the table to Bond. Bond slipped them into his right-hand pocket. His face showed no emotion, 
but he was pleased with the success of his first coup and with the outcome of the silent clash of wills across the table. As the game went on, Bond looked over the spectators leaning on the high brass rail round the table. He soon saw Le Chiffre's two gunmen. They stood behind and to either side of the banker. The one more or less behind Le Chiffre's right arm was tall and funereal in his dinner jacket. Bond guessed that he would kill without interest or concern, and that he would prefer strangling. The other man was short and very dark, with a flat head covered with thickly greased hair. A chunky malacca cane with a rubber tip hung on the rail beside him. His mouth hung vacantly half open and revealed very bad teeth. He wore a heavy black moustache, and the backs of his hands on the rail were matted with black hair. Naked, Bond supposed, he would be an obscene object. The game continued uneventfully, but with a slight bias against the bank. Le Chiffre showed no trace of emotion. He continued to play like an automaton, never speaking except when he gave instructions in a lower side to the croupier at the opening of each new bank. It was at ten minutes past one by Bond's watch, when the whole pattern of play suddenly altered. The Greek at number one was still having a bad time. He had lost the first coup of half a million francs and the second. He passed the third time, leaving a bank of two million. Carmel Delane at number two refused it. So did Lady Danvers at number three. The Dupont looked at each other. Banco, said Mrs. Dupont, and promptly lost to the banker's natural eight. Un banco de quatre millions, said the croupier. Banco, said Bond, pushing out a wad of notes. Again he fixed Le Chiffre with his eye. Again he gave only a cursory look at his two cards. No, he said. He held a marginal five. The position was dangerous. Le Chiffre turned up a knave and a four. He gave the shoe another slap. He drew a three. Set à la banque, said the croupier. Et cinq, he added as he tipped Bond's losing cards face upwards. Un banco de huit millions. Suivi, said Bond, and lost again to a natural nine. In two coups, he had lost twelve million francs. By scraping the barrel, he had just sixteen million francs left, exactly the amount of the next banco. Suddenly, Bond felt the sweat on his palms. Like snow in sunshine, his capital had melted. With the covetous deliberation of the winning gambler, Le Chiffre was tapping a light tattoo on the table with his right hand. Bond looked across into the eye. Casino Royale, a casino where Bond can't quit until he's winning, which at the moment he most definitely ain't. Bond sat silent, frozen with defeat. He opened his wide black case and took out a cigarette. He took a deep lungful of smoke and expelled it between his teeth with a faint hiss. What now? Back to the hotel and bed, avoiding the commiserating eyes of Matisse and Leiter and Vesper. Back to the telephone call to London, and then tomorrow the plane home, the taxi up to Regent's Park, the walk up the stairs and along the corridor, and M's cold face across the table, his forced sympathy, his better luck next time, and, of course... There couldn't be one.
not another chance like this. He looked round the table and up at the spectators. Few were looking at him. They were waiting, waiting to see if anyone would conceivably challenge this huge bank of thirty-two million francs, this wonderful run of banker's luck. Lighter had vanished, not wishing to look Bond in the eye after the knockout, he supposed. Yet Vesper looked curiously unmoved, but then Bond reflected she knew nothing of the game, had no notion, probably, of the bitterness of his defeat. The huissier was coming towards Bond inside the rail. He placed a squat envelope beside Bond on the table. It was as thick as a dictionary. Bond's heart thumped. He took the heavy, anonymous envelope below the level of the table and slit it open with his thumbnail, noticing that the gum was still wet on the flap. Unbelieving, and yet knowing it was true, he felt the broad wads of notes. He slipped them into his pockets, retaining the half-sheet of notepaper which was pinned to the topmost of them. Marshal aid, thirty-two million francs, with the compliments of the USA. Bond swallowed. He looked over towards Vesper. Felix Leiter was again standing beside her. He grinned slightly, and Bond smiled back and raised his hand from the table in a small gesture of benediction. Then he set his mind to sweeping away all traces of the sense of complete defeat which had swamped him a few minutes before. This was a reprieve, but only a reprieve. There could be no more miracles. This time he had to win. The croupier had completed his task of making a pile of the giant stake in the middle of the table. There lay thirty-two thousand pounds. Perhaps, thought Bond, Le Chiffre needed just one more coup, a few million francs, to achieve his object. Then he would have made his fifty million francs and would leave the table. He showed no signs of moving, and Bond guessed with relief that somehow he must have overestimated Le Chiffre's resources. At last, Le Chiffre nodded. Un banco de trente-deux millions, the croupier's voice rang out. A silence built itself up round the table. It was then that Bond leant slightly forward. Sweevy, he said quietly. There was an excited buzz round the table. The word ran through the casino. People crowded in. Thirty-two million. For most of them it was more than they had earned all their lives. It was, literally, a small fortune. One of the casino directors consulted with the chef de partie. The chef de partie turned apologetically to Bond. Excusez-moi, monsieur. La mise? It was an indication that Bond really must show he had the money to cover the bet. They knew, of course, that he was a very wealthy man, but after all, thirty-two millions. It was when Bond shoveled the great wad of notes out onto the table that he caught a swift exchange of glances between Le Chiffre and the gunman standing directly behind Bond. Immediately, he felt something hard press into the base of his spine. At the same time, a thick voice speaking southern French said softly, urgently, just behind his right ear, This is a gun, monsieur. It is absolutely silent. It can blow the base of your spine off without a sound. You will appear to have fainted. I shall be gone. Withdraw your bet before I count ten. If you call for help, I shall fire. The voice was confident. Bond believed it. 
The thick walking stick was explained. Bond knew the type of gun he had tested them himself. Uh, said the voice. Bond turned his head. There was the man, leaning forward close behind him, smiling broadly under his black moustache, as if he was wishing Bond luck, completely secure in the noise and the crowd. The discoloured teeth came together. Duh, said the grinning mouth. Bond looked across. Le Chiffre was watching him. His eyes glittered back at Bond. His mouth was open and he was breathing fast. Trois. Bond looked over at Vesper and Felix Leiter. They were smiling and talking to each other. The fools. Where was Matisse? Where were those famous men of his? Quatre. Couldn't someone see what was happening? Cinq. The croupier was tidying up the pile of notes. The chef de partie bowed smilingly towards Bond. Directly the stake was in order, he would announce, Le jeu est fait. And the gun would fire, whether the gunman had reached ten or not. Six. Bond decided. It was a chance. He carefully moved his hands to the edge of the table, gripped it, edged his buttocks right back, feeling the sharp gun sight grind into his coccyx. Sept. The chef de partie turned to Le Chiffre with his eyebrows lifted, waiting for the banker's nod that he was ready to play. Suddenly, Bond heaved backwards with all his strength. His momentum tipped the crossbar of the chair back down so quickly that it cracked across the malacca tube and wrenched it from the gunman's hand before he could pull the trigger. Bond went head over heels onto the ground amongst the spectator's feet, his legs in the air. There were cries of dismay. Hands helped him to his feet and brushed him down. Bond held on to the brass rail. He looked confused and embarrassed. He brushed his hands across his forehead. A momentary faintness, he said. It is nothing. The excitement. The heat. There were expressions of sympathy. Would monsieur prefer to withdraw, to lie down, to go home? Should a doctor be fetched? Bond shook his head. He was perfectly all right now. His excuses to the table. To the banker, also. A new chair was brought, and he sat down. He looked across at Le Chiffre. Through his relief at being alive, he felt a moment of triumph at what he saw, some fear in the fat, pale face. There was no trace of the gunman, but the huissier was looking for someone to claim the Malacca stick. Bond beckoned to him. If you will give it to that gentleman over there. He indicated Felix Leiter. He will return it. It belongs to an acquaintance of his. Bond grimly reflected that a short examination would reveal to Leiter why he had made such an embarrassing public display of himself. He turned back to the table and tapped the green cloth in front of him to show that he was ready. La partie continue, announced the chef impressively. Un banco de trente-deux millions. The spectators craned forward. Bond's mind was clear again. By a miracle, he had survived a devastating wound. The success of his gambit with the chair had wiped out all memories of the dreadful valley of defeat through which he had just passed. The cards were waiting for him. They must not fail him. The two cards slithered towards him across the green sea. Like an octopus under a rock, Le Chiffre watched him from the other side of the table. Would it be the lift of the heart which a nine brings or an eight brings? He fanned the two cards under the curtain of his hand. The muscles of his jaw 
rippled as he clenched his teeth. His whole body stiffened in a reflex of self-defense. He had two queens, two red queens. They looked roguishly back at him from the shadows. They were the worst. They were nothing. Zero. Baccarat. A card, said Bond, fighting to keep hopelessness out of his voice. He felt the chief's eyes boring into his brain. The banker slowly turned his own two cards face up. He had a count of three, a king and a black three. Bond softly exhaled the cloud of tobacco smoke. He still had a chance. Now he was really faced with a moment of truth. Le Chiffre slapped the shoe, slipped out a card, Bond's fate, and slowly turned it face up. It was a nine. A wonderful nine of hearts. The card known in gypsy magic was a whisper of love, a whisper of hate. The card that meant almost certain victory for Bond. Bond's cards lay on the table before him, the two impersonal pale pink patterned backs and the faced nine of hearts. The sweat was running down either side of the banker's beaky nose. His thick tongue came out slyly and licked a drop out of the corner of his red gash of a mouth. He looked at Bond's cards and then at his own and then back at Bond's. Then his whole body shrugged, and he slipped out a card for himself from the lisping shoe. He faced it. The table craned. It was a wonderful card. A five. Huit à la banque, said the croupier. As Bond sat silent, Le Chiffre suddenly grinned wolfishly. He must have won. The croupier's spatula reached almost apologetically across the table, there was not a man at the table who did not believe Bond was defeated. The spatula flicked the two pink cards over on their backs. The gay red queens smiled up at the lights. Elenerf! A great gasp went up round the table, and then a hubbub of talk. Bond's eyes were on Le Chiffre. The big man fell back in his chair as if slugged above the heart. His mouth opened and shut once or twice in protest, and his right hand felt at his throat. As the huge stack of plaque was shunted across the table to Bond, the banker reached into an inner pocket of his jacket and threw a wad of notes. James Bond has skillfully avoided the weapons of Le Chiffre's men, and through skill, and more than his fair share of luck, the cards have fallen his way. Le Chiffre is defeated. Bond has won but will he live long enough to enjoy victory? At the hotel, Leiter insisted on accompanying Bond to his room. Both men had their hands on their guns. It was as Bond had left it six hours before. No reception committee, observed Leiter. I wouldn't put it past them to try a last throw. Do you think I ought to stay up and keep you company? Oh, you get your sleep, said Bond. They won't be interested in me without the money, and I've got an idea for looking after that. Thanks for all you've done. I hope we get on a job again one day. Suits me, said Leiter. So long as you can draw a nine when it's needed. 
and bring Vesper along with you, he added dryly. He went out and closed the door. Bond turned away and took out of his pocket the cheque for forty million francs. He folded this very small. Then he opened the door and looked up and down the corridor. He left the door wide open, and with his ears cocked for footsteps or the sound of the lift, he set to work with a small screwdriver. Five minutes later, he gave a last-minute survey to his handiwork, put some fresh cigarettes in his case, closed and locked the door, and went off down the corridor and across the hall and out into the moonlight. Bond took Vesper's arm and led her over the gilded step of the Roi Galant. The nightclub was small and dark, lit only by candles in gilded candelabra. In the far corner, a trio consisting of a piano, an electric guitar and drums, was playing La Vie en Rose with muted sweetness. Seduction dripped on the quietly throbbing air. They were given a corner table near the door. Bond ordered a bottle of Veuve Clicquot and scrambled eggs and bacon. They sat for a time listening to the music, and then Bond turned to Vesper. It's wonderful sitting here with you and knowing the job's finished. It's a lovely end to the day. The prize-giving. He expected her to smile. She said, Yes, isn't it? In a rather brittle voice. Between the thumb and first two fingers of her right hand, she held one of Bond's cigarettes, as an artist holds a crayon, and though she smoked with composure, she tapped the cigarette occasionally into an ashtray, when the cigarette had no ash. Bond noticed these small things because he felt intensely aware of her and wanted to draw her into his own feeling of relaxed sensuality. But he accepted her reserve. He thought it came from a desire to protect herself from him, or else was a reaction to his coolness earlier. He was patient. He drank champagne and talked a little about the happenings of the day. She answered perfunctorily. She sipped at her champagne and rarely glanced at Bond. He felt frustrated. The scrambled eggs came, and they ate in silence. At four o'clock, Bond was about to call for the bill when the maître d'hôtel appeared at their table and inquired for Miss Lind. He handed her a note which she took and read hastily. Oh, it's only Matisse, she said. He says when I come to the entrance hall, he's got a message for you. Perhaps he's not in evening clothes or something. I, I won't be a minute. Then perhaps we could go home. She gave him a strained smile. I'm afraid I don't feel very good company this evening. It's been a rather nerve-wracking day. I'm so sorry. Bond watched her take a few steps to the entrance. He lit a cigarette. He felt flat. He took a last mouthful of champagne. It tasted bitter, as the first glass too many always does. He would have liked to have seen Matisse's cheerful face and heard his news, perhaps even a word of congratulation. Suddenly the note to Vesper seemed odd to him. It was not the way Matisse would do things. He would have joined them in the nightclub, whatever his clothes. Bond hastily paid the bill, not waiting for the change. He hurried through the gaming room and looked carefully up and down the long entrance hall. He cursed and quickened his step. No Vesper, no Matisse. He was almost running. He got to the entrance and was halfway down the steps when he heard a faint cry, then the slam of a door way to the right. 
with a harsh growl and stutter from the exhaust, a beetle-browed citron shot out of the shadows into the light of the moon. Its tail rocked on its soft springs as if a violent struggle was taking place on the back seat. With a snarl it raced out to the wide entrance gate in a spray of gravel. A small black object shot out of an open rear window and thudded into a flower bed. The car haired off between the shops on the main street towards the coast road. Bond knew he would find Vesper's evening bag among the flowers. He ran back with it across the gravel to the brightly lit steps and scrabbled through its contents. The crumpled note was there amongst the usual feminine baggage. Can you come to the entrance hall for a moment? I have news for your companion, René Matisse. It was the crudest possible forgery. Bond leapt for the Bentley, blessing the impulse which had made him drive it over after dinner. As the car rocked to the left outside the gate, Bond settled himself for the pursuit, briefly savouring the echo of the huge exhaust. Soon he was out on the coast road, a broad highway through the sand dunes, which he knew from his morning's drive. He knew the Citroen must have come this way. He hoped soon to see the distant shaft of its headlights. The night was still and clear. As he drove, whipping the car faster and faster through the night, with the other half of his mind he cursed Vesper and M for having sent her on the job. This was just what he had been afraid of, these blithering women who thought they could do a man's work. Why the hell couldn't they stay at home and mind their pots and pans and stick to their frocks and gossip? For Vesper to fall for an old trick like that and get herself snatched and probably held to ransom like some bloody heroine in a strip cartoon. Bond boiled at the thought of the fix he was in. Of course, the idea was a straight swap. The girl against his cheque for forty million. Well, he wouldn't play. Wouldn't think of playing. She was in the service and knew what she was up against. He wouldn't even ask M. The job was more important than her. Bond's mind raged furiously on with the problem as he flung the great car down the coast road, automatically taking the curves. He knew he must be gaining fast. On an impulse, he slowed down to seventy and turned on his fog lights. Sure enough, without the blinding curtain of his own headlights, he could see the glow of another car a mile or two down the coast. Ahead, in the Citroen, there were three men and the girl. Le Chiffre was driving, his big fluid body hunched forward, his hands light and delicate on the wheel. Beside sat the squat man who had carried the stick in the casino. In his left hand he grasped a thick lever. In the back seat was the tall, thin gunman. His right hand lay caressingly on Vesper's left thigh, which stretched out naked beside him. Apart from her legs, which were naked to the hips, Vesper was only a parcel. Her long black velvet skirt had been lifted over her arms and head and tied above her head with a piece of rope. Where her face was, a small gap had been torn in the velvet so that she could breathe. She was not bound in any other way, and she lay quiet, her body moving sluggishly with the swaying of the car. Le Chiffre was concentrating half on the road ahead and half on the onrushing glare of Bond's headlights in the driving mirror. He seemed undisturbed when not more than a mile separated the hare from the hounds, and he even brought the car down from eighty to sixty miles an hour. Now, as he swept round a bend, he slowed down still further. In the mirror, Bond's great headlights were lighting up the bend. Le Chiffre seemed to make up his mind. Allez.
The man beside him pulled the lever sharply upwards. The boot at the back of the car yawned open like a whale's mouth. There was a tinkling clatter on the road. Le Chief threw the Citroen left-handed down a narrow side road. He stopped the car with a jerk, and all three men got swiftly out and doubled back under cover of a low hedge to the crossroads, now fiercely illuminated by the lights of the Bentley. Each of them carried a revolver. The Bentley screamed down towards them like an express train. As Bond hurtled round the bend, he was working out his plan of action. He imagined that the enemy driver would try to dodge off into a side road if he got the chance, so when he saw no lights ahead, it was a normal reflex to prepare to brake. He was only doing about sixty as he approached the black patch across the right-hand crown of the road, which he assumed to be the shadow cast by a wayside tree. Even so, there was no time to save himself. There was suddenly a small carpet of glinting steel spikes right under his offside wing. Then he was on top of it. The heavy car whirled across the road in a tearing dry skid, slammed the left bank with a crash that knocked Bond out of the driving seat onto the floor, and then, facing back up the road, it reared slowly up, its front wheels spinning and its great headlights searching the sky. For a split second, resting on the petrol tank, it seemed to pour at the heavens like a giant praying mantis. Then slowly it toppled over backwards and fell with a splintering crash of coachwork. Le Chiffre and his two men only had to walk a few yards from their ambush. Put your guns away and get him out, he ordered brusquely. Be careful of him. I don't want a corpse. The two men got down on their knees. One of them took out a long knife and cut some of the fabric away from the side of the convertible hood and took hold of Bond's shoulders. He was unconscious and immovable. The thin man felt his heart and then slapped his face hard on either side. Bond grunted and moved a hand. The thin man slapped him again. That's enough, said Le Chiffre. Tie his arms and put him in the car. Here. He threw a roll of flex to the man. He walked back to the car. His face showed neither pleasure nor excitement. It was the sharp... Mr. Bond is in a delicate position, and Le Chiffre is not disposed to mercy. The reader is Alex Jennings. Le Chiffre was standing in the doorway of a room. He crooked a finger at Bond in a silent, spidery summons. It was a large bare room, sparsely furnished in cheap French Art Nouveau style. Over by the window was an incongruous-looking throne-like chair in carved oak with a red velvet seat, a low table on which stood an empty water carafe and two glasses, and a light armchair with a round cane seat and no cushion. Le Chiffre pointed at the cane chair. That will do excellently, he said to the thin man who had followed Bond into the room. Prepare him quickly. If he resists, damage him only a little. He turned to Bond. Take off your clothes. For every effort to resist, Basil will break one of your fingers. We are serious people, and your good health is of no interest to us. Whether you live or die depends on the outcome of the talk we are about to have. He made a gesture towards the thin man and left the room.
The thin man's first action was a curious one. He opened the clasp knife he had used on the hood of Bond's car, took the small armchair, and with a swift motion he cut out its cane seat. Then he turned Bond round to the light and unwound the flex from his wrists. Vite! Bond looked him in the eye and then slowly started to take off his shirt. Le Chiffre came quietly back into the room. He carried a pot of what smelt like coffee. He put it on the small table near the window. He also placed beside it on the table two other homely objects, a three-foot-long carpet-beater in twisted cane and a carving knife. He settled himself comfortably on the throne-like chair and poured some of the coffee into one of the glasses. With one foot, he hooked forward the small armchair, whose seat was now an empty circular frame of wood, until it was directly opposite him. Bond stood stark naked in the middle of the room, bruises showing livid on his white body, his face a grey mask of exhaustion and knowledge of what was to come. Sit down there. Le Chief nodded at the chair in front of him. Bond walked over and sat down. The thin man produced some flex. With this he bound Bond's wrists to the arms of the chair and his ankles to the front legs. He passed a double strand across his chest and threw the chair back. He made no mistakes with the knots and left no play in any of the bindings. All of them bit sharply into Bond's flesh. The legs of the chair were broadly spaced and Bond could not even rock it. He was utterly a prisoner, naked and defenceless. His buttocks and the underpart of his body protruded through the seat of the chair towards the floor. The chief nodded to the thin man who quietly left the room and closed the door. Then he picked up the cane carpet-beater and, resting the handle comfortably on his knee, allowed the flat trefoil base to lie on the floor directly under Bond's chair. He looked Bond carefully, almost caressingly, in the eyes. Then his wrist sprang suddenly upwards on his knee. The result was startling. Bond's whole body arched in an involuntary spasm, his face contracted in a soundless scream, and his lips drew right away from his teeth. For an instant, muscles stood out in knots all over his body, and his toes and fingers clenched until they were quite white. Then his body sagged, and perspiration started to bead all over his body. He uttered a deep groan. Le Chiffre waited for his eyes to open. You see, dear boy, he smiled a soft, fat smile. Is the position quite clear now? A drop of sweat fell off Bond's chin onto his naked chest. Now, let us get down to business and see how soon we can be finished with this unfortunate mess you have got yourself into. He puffed cheerfully at his cigarette. My dear boy, Le Chiffre spoke like a father. The game of Red Indians is over, quite over. You have stumbled by mischance into a game for grown-ups, and you have already found it a painful experience. He suddenly dropped his bantering tone and looked at Bond sharply and venomously. Where is the money? Bond's bloodshot eyes looked emptily back at him. Again the upward jerk of the wrist, and again Bond's whole body writhed and contorted. Le Chiffre waited until Bond's eyes dully opened again. Perhaps I should explain, said Le Chiffre. 
I intend to continue attacking the sensitive parts of your body until you answer my question. If you continue to be obstinate, you will be tortured to the edge of madness, and then the girl will be brought in and we will set about her in front of you. If that is still not enough, you will both be painfully killed and I shall reluctantly leave your bodies and make my way abroad to a comfortable house which is waiting for me. If you hand the money over... So much the better. If not, I shall shrug my shoulders and be on my way. He paused, and his wrist lifted slightly on his knee. Bond's flesh cringed as the cane's surface just touched him. Well? Bond closed his eyes and waited for the pain. Like a rattlesnake, the cane instrument leapt from the floor. It struck again and again so that Bond screamed and his body jangled in the chair like a marionette. Through the red mist of pain, Bond thought of Vesper. He could imagine how she was being used by the two gunmen. Poor wretch to have been dragged into this. The chief was talking again. Torture is a terrible thing, he was saying as he puffed at a fresh cigarette, but it is a simple matter for the torturer. Particularly when the patient, he smiled at the word, is a man. With this simple instrument, one can cause a man as much pain as is possible. It is not only the immediate agony, but also the thought that your manhood is being gradually destroyed, and that at the end, if you will not yield, you will no longer be a man. That, my dear Bond, is inevitable unless you tell me where you hid the money. He poured some more coffee into the glass. Bond raised his head and spoke thickly. Money. No good to you. His voice was a laborious croak. Police. Trace it. To you. Exhausted by the effort, his head sank forward again. Ah, my dear fellow, I had forgotten to tell you. The chief smiled wolfishly. We met after our little game at the casino, and you are such a sportsman that you agreed we would have one more run through the pack between the two of us. It was a gallant gesture, typical of an English gentleman. Unfortunately, you lost, and this upset you so much that you decided to leave Royale immediately for an unknown destination. Like the gentleman you are, you very kindly gave me a note explaining the circumstances so that I would have no difficulty in cashing your check. You see, dear boy, everything has been thought of, and you need have no fears on my account. He chuckled fatly. So that was the score, thought Bond, with a final sinking of the heart. The unknown destination would be under the ground, or under the sea, or perhaps, more simply, under the crashed Bentley. Well, if he had to die anyway, he might as well try it the hard way. He had no hope that Mattis or Leiter would get to him in time, but at least there was a chance that they would catch up with Le Chiffre before he could get away. It was a choice of evils, but the longer Le Chiffre continued the torture, the more likely he would be revenged. Bond lifted his head and looked Le Chiffre in the eyes. The china of the whites was now veined with red. The upward edges of black coffee at the corners of the mouth gave a false smile. No, he said flatly. Le Chiffre grunted and set to work again with savage fury. 
Occasionally he snarled like a wild beast. After ten minutes, Bond had fainted, blessedly. It was extraordinary to hear the third voice. Bond's dimmed senses hardly took it in. Then suddenly he was halfway back to consciousness. He found he could see and hear again. He could hear the dead silence after the one quiet word from the doorway. He could see Le Chiffre's head slowly come up and the expression of blank astonishment, of innocent amazement, slowly give way to fear. Stop, had said the voice quietly. Bond heard slow steps approaching behind his chair. He tried desperately to read into Le Chiffre's face what was happening behind him, but all he saw was blinding comprehension and terror. His hands fluttered vaguely in his lap. His round staring eyes had lowered for a split second, and Bond guessed there was a gun trained on him. There was a moment's silence. Smirch. The word came almost with a sigh. It came with a downward cadence, as if nothing else had to be said. It was the final explanation, the last word of all. No, said Le Chiffre. No, I... His voice tailed off. Perhaps he was going to explain, to apologize, but what he must have seen in the other's face made it all useless. You're two men, both dead. You are a fool and a thief and a traitor. I have been sent from the Soviet Union to eliminate you. We cannot see the end of the trouble you have caused. Do you plead guilty? Bond wrestled with his consciousness. He screwed up his eyes and tried to shake his head to clear it. But his whole nervous system was numbed and no message was transmitted to his muscles. He could just keep his focus on the great pale face in front of him and on its bulging eyes. A thin string of saliva crept from the open mouth and hung down from the chin. Yes, said the mouth. There was a sharp fut, no louder than a bubble of air escaping from a tube of toothpaste. No other noise at all. And suddenly Le Chiffre had grown another eye, right where the thick nose started to jut out below the forehead. It was a small black eye, without eyelashes or eyebrows. You are about to awake when you dream that you are dreaming. During the next two days, James Bond was permanently in this state, without regaining consciousness. He watched the procession of his dreams go by. He felt safer in the darkness, and he hugged it to him. On the morning of the third day, a bloody nightmare shook him awake, trembling and sweating. His whole body was strapped down, and something like a large white coffin covered him from chest to feet and obscured his view of the end of the bed. He shouted a string of obscenities, but the effort took all his strength, and the words tailed off into a sob. Tears of forlornness and self-pity welled out of his eyes. A woman's voice was speaking, and the words gradually penetrated to him. It slowly came to him that he was being comforted, and that this was a friend and not an enemy. He could hardly believe it. He had been so certain that he was still a captive and that the torture was about to begin again. He felt his face being softly wiped with a cool cloth which smelt of lavender, and then he sank back into his dreams. When he awoke again some hours later, all his terrors had gone, and he felt warm and languorous. Sun was streaming into the bright room, 
and in the background there was the noise of small waves on a beach. As he moved his head, he heard a rustle, and a nurse who had been sitting beside his pillow rose and came into his line of vision. Well, I'm certainly glad you've woken up at last. Never heard such dreadful language in my life. Bond smiled back at her. Where am I? he asked, and was surprised that his voice sounded firm and clear. You're in a nursing home at Royale, and I've been sent over from England to look after you. I'm Nurse Gibson. Now, just lie quiet, and I'll go and tell the doctor you're awake. Bond closed his eyes and mentally explored his body. The worst pain was in his wrists and ankles, and in his right hand where the Russian had cut him. In the centre of the body there was no feeling. He assumed that he had been given a local anaesthetic. The rest of his body ached dully, as if he had been beaten all over. He was preparing a short list of questions in his mind when the door opened, and the doctor came in, followed by the nurse, and in the background the dear figure of Mattis, a Mattis looking anxious behind his broad smile. When the doctor spoke, he was forthright. You have a lot of questions to ask, my dear Mr. Bond, he said in excellent English, and I can tell you most of the answers. I do not want you to waste your strength, so I will give you the salient facts, and then you may have a few minutes with Monsieur Mattis, who wishes to obtain one or two details from you. It is really too early for this talk, but I wish to set your mind at rest so that we can proceed with the task of repairing your body without bothering too much about your mind. Nurse Gibson pulled up a chair for the doctor and left the room. You have been here about two days, continued the doctor. Your car was found by a farmer on the way to market in Royal, and he informs the police. After some delay, Monsieur Matisse heard that it was your car, and he immediately went to Le Chiffre's villa with his men. You and Le Chiffre were found, and also your friend Miss Lind, who was unharmed and, according to her account, suffered no molestation. She was prostrated with shock, but is now fully recovered and is at her hotel. The doctor paused. Your own injuries are serious, but your life is not in danger, though you have lost a lot of blood. If all goes well, you will recover completely, and none of the functions of your body will be impaired. For how long were you maltreated? About an hour, said Bond. Then it is remarkable that you are alive, and I congratulate you. Few men could have supported what you have been through. The doctor looked at Bond for a moment, and then turned brusquely to Mattis. You may have ten minutes, and then you will be forcibly ejected. If you put the patient's temperature up, you will answer for it. He gave them both a broad smile and left the room. Mattis came over and took the doctor's chair. I have a personal message from M, he said. He spoke to me himself on the telephone. He simply said to tell you that he is much impressed. I asked if that was all, and he said, Well, tell him that the treasury is greatly relieved. Then he rang off. Bond grinned with pleasure. This was quite unheard of. The very existence of M, let alone his identity, was never admitted. He could imagine the flutter this must have caused in the ultra-security-minded organization in London. A tall, thin man with one arm came over from London the same day we found you, continued Mattis. He seemed to be Vesper's boss. 
He spent a lot of time with her and gave her strict instructions to look after you. Head of S, thought Bond. They're certainly giving me the red carpet treatment. Now, said Mattis, to business. Who killed Le Chiffre? Smirsch, said Bond. Mattis gave a low whistle. My God, he said respectfully. So they were on to him. What did he look like? Bond explained briefly what had happened up to the moment of Le Chiffre's death, omitting all but the most essential details. It cost him an effort. Casting his mind back to the scene awoke the whole nightmare, and as the sweat began to pour off his forehead, Mattis realized that he was going too far. He laid a hand on Bond's shoulder. Forgive me, my friend, he said. It is all over now, and you are in safe hands. One last mystery, and then I promise I will go. What about the money? Where is it? Where did you hide it? We have been over your room with a tooth comb. It isn't there. Bond grinned. It is, he said, more or less. On the door of each room there is a small square of black plastic with the number of the room on it. On the corridor side, of course. When Lighter left me that night, I simply opened the door and unscrewed my number plate and put the folded check underneath it. It'll still be there. Mattis laughed delightedly. I suppose you think that paid me back for knowing what the Munces were up to. Well, I'll call it quits. He rose hastily as the doctor stormed into the room and took one look at Bond. Out, he said to Mattis. Out and don't come back. And Mattis just had time to wave cheerfully to Bond and call some hasty words of farewell before he was hustled through the door. Bond lay back exhausted, but heartened by all he had heard. He found himself thinking of Vesper as he quickly drifted off into a troubled sleep. There were still questions to be answered. But they could wait. Bond made good progress. When Mattis came to see him three days later, the lower half of his body was still shrouded in the oblong tent, but he looked cheerful, and it was only occasionally that a twinge of pain narrowed his eyes. Mattis looked crestfallen. Here's your check, he said to Bond. I've rather enjoyed walking around with forty million francs in my pocket. Uh, there is no sign of our friend from Smersh. Not a damn trace. He's probably back home by now, being told off for not shooting me, said Bond. I fancy they've got quite a file on me, in view of one or two of the jobs Em's given me since the war. He obviously thought he was being smart enough, cutting his initial in my hand. What's that? asked Mattis. The doctor said the cuts looked like a square M with a tail to the top. He said they didn't mean anything. Well, I only got a glimpse before I passed out. But I'm pretty certain they are the Russian letter for SH. It's rather like an inverted M with a tail. That would make sense. Smirsch is short for Schmidt Spionum, death to spies. And he thinks he's labelled me as a Spion. It's a nuisance, because M will probably say I've got to go to hospital again when I get back to London and have new skin grafted over the hole at the back of my hand. It doesn't matter much. I've decided to resign. Mattis looked at him with his mouth open. Resign? he asked incredulously. 
What's L4? Bond looked away from Mattis. He studied his bandaged hands. When I was being beaten up, he said, I suddenly liked the idea of being alive. Before Le Chiffre began, he used a phrase which stuck in my mind, playing Red Indians. He said that's what I had been doing. Well, I suddenly thought he might be right. You see, he said, still looking down at his bandages, when one's young, it seems very easy to distinguish between right and wrong, and one grows up wanting to be a hero and kill the villains. He looked obstinately at Mattis. Well, in the last few years, I've killed two villains. The first was in New York, a Japanese cipher expert cracking our codes. It was a pretty sound job, nice and clean, too. The next time in Stockholm wasn't so pretty. I had to kill a Norwegian who was doubling against us for the Germans. And, well, he just didn't die very quickly. For those two jobs, I was awarded a double-O number in the service. A double-O number in our service means you've had to kill a chap in cold blood in the course of some job. Now, he looked up again at Mattis. That's all very fine. The hero kills two villains, but when the hero Le Chiffre starts to kill the villain Bond, and the villain Bond knows he isn't a villain at all, you see the other side of the medal. The villains and heroes get all mixed up. This country-right-or-wrong business is getting a little out of date. Today we are fighting communism. If I had been alive fifty years ago, the brand of conservatism we have today would have been damn near communism, and we would have been told to go... It seems James Bond is confused by women. That might not surprise you. He's been reunited with Vesper, and their love continues. But what is it that troubles her? Alex Jennings reads Part 9 of Casino Royale. It was on the next day that Bond asked to see Vesper. He had not wanted to see her before. He was embarrassed at having to ask one or two questions about her behaviour which mystified him. The answers would almost certainly make her out to be a fool. And he had his full report to M to think about. He didn't want to have to criticise Vesper. It might easily cost her her job. But above all, he admitted to himself, he shirked the answer to a more painful question. For an hour in that room with Le Chiffre, the certainty of impotence had been beaten into him, and a scar had been left on his mind that could only be healed by experience. From that day when Bond first met Vesper in the Hermitage Bar, he had found her desirable, and now he was afraid that his senses and his body would not respond to her sensual beauty. That was the real reason why he had put off their first meeting for over a week. He had expected that she would show some sign of her experiences, that she would look pale and even ill. He was not prepared for the tall, bronzed girl in a cream tusser frock who came happily through the door and stood smiling at him. Good heavens, Vesper, he said with a wry gesture of welcome. You look absolutely splendid. You must thrive on disaster. I feel very guilty, she said, sitting down beside him. 
But I've been bathing every day. I've found a wonderful stretch of sand down the coast, and I've managed to get over the fact that it's on the way down that road to the villa. Her voice faltered. The mention of the villa had made Bond's eyes flicker. She continued bravely, refusing to be defeated by Bond's lack of response. I thought perhaps, perhaps I could take you down to this beach later on. The doctor says that bathing will be very good for you. Bond grunted. Not God knows when I'll be able to bathe, apart from anything else. He glanced pointedly down the bed. My body's a mass of scars and bruises. Oh, but you enjoy yourself. Vesper was stung by the bitterness and injustice in his voice. I'm sorry, she said. I just thought... Suddenly her eyes filled with tears. I'm sorry, she said in a muffled voice. It's all my fault. She dabbed at her eyes. I know it's all my fault. Bond at once relented. He put out a bandaged hand and laid it on her knee. It's all right, Vesper. I'm sorry I was so rough. It's just that I was jealous of you in the sunshine while I'm stuck here. Directly I'm well enough. You must show me your beach. Bond looked at her tenderly. Like all harsh, cold men, he was easily tipped over into sentiment. Vesper put out a hand and touched one of his. Her eyes filled with tears. It's horrible, she said. The things they did to you. And it was all my fault. That's all right, said Bond comfortingly. Now come on, let's forget about it. Vesper looked at him gratefully through her tears. You really promise? she asked. I thought you would never forgive me. I... I'll try and make it up to you. Somehow. She was smiling at him. He smiled back. You better look out, he said. I may hold you to that. From that day, Bond's recovery was rapid. He sat up in bed and wrote his report to M., he made light of what he still considered amateurish behaviour on the part of Vesper. Every day Vesper came to see him, and he looked forward to these visits with excitement. He found he could speak to her easily, and he was surprised. With most women his manner was a mixture of taciturnity and passion. But in the dull room and the boredom of his treatment, her presence was each day an oasis of pleasure, something to look forward to. With enjoyable steps Bond recovered. He was allowed up, then he was allowed to sit in the garden, then he could go for a short walk, then for a long drive. And then the afternoon came when the doctor pronounced him well again. His clothes were brought round by Vesper. Farewells were exchanged with the nurses, and a hired car drove them away. It was three weeks from the day when he had been on the edge of death, and now it was July, and the hot summer shimmered down the coast and out to sea. Bond clasped the moment to him. Their destination was to be a surprise for him, and Vesper insisted on being mysterious about it. Their drive was spoiled by a curious incident. While they followed the coast road in the direction of Le Chiffre's villa, Bond described to her his wild chase in the Bentley, finally pointing out the curve he had taken before the crash and the exact place where the vicious carpet of spikes had been laid. But all the time she was distray and fidgety, 
and commented only in monosyllables. Once or twice he caught her glancing in the driving mirror. Finally he took her hand. Something's on your mind, Vesper, he said. She gave him a taut, bright smile. It's nothing. Absolutely nothing. I had a silly idea we were being followed. Under cover of a short laugh, she looked back again. Look! There was an edge of panic in her voice. Obediently, Bond turned his head. Sure enough, a quarter of a mile away, a black saloon was coming after them at a good pace. Bond laughed. We can't be the only people using this road, he said. It's a middle-aged commercial traveller. He's probably thinking of his lunch and his mistress in Paris. Really, Vesper, you mustn't think evil of the innocent. I expect you're right, she said nervously. She shook herself slightly. Now, we'll be there in a second. I do hope you're going to like it. As they came through the dunes, they saw the sea and the modest little inn amongst the pines. It's not very grand, I'm afraid, said Vesper, but it's very clean, and the food's wonderful. She need not have worried. Bond loved the place at first sight. The low two-storied house with gay brick-red awnings over the windows and the crescent-shaped bay of blue water and golden sands. They drew up in the courtyard behind the house, and the proprietor and his wife came out to greet them. Monsieur Versois showed them to their rooms. When the proprietor left them, Bond pushed her inside and closed the door. Then he put his hands on her shoulders and kissed her on both cheeks. This is heaven, he said. And he saw that her eyes were shining. Her hands came up and rested on his forearms. He stepped right up against her, and her head went back, and her mouth opened beneath his. My darling, he said. He slipped his hands down to her swelling buttocks and gripped them fiercely, pressing the centers of their bodies together. Panting, she slipped her mouth away from his, and they clung together while he rubbed his cheek against hers and felt her hard breasts pressing into him. She pushed him away and sank back, exhausted, onto the bed. For a moment, they looked at each other, hungrily. I'm sorry, Vesper, he said. I didn't mean to, then. She shook her head, dumb with the storm which had passed through her. Bond put his arm round her, but she got up and walked over to the window. She stood there with her back to him. It's going to take some time to get ready for dinner, said Vesper, still not looking at him. Why don't you go and bathe? I'll unpack for you. Bond walked over to the door and looked back. She had not moved. For some reason he thought she was crying. He took a step towards her and then realized that there was nothing to say between them then. Bond walked along to his room and sat down on the bed. He felt weak from the passion which had swept through his body. He longed to be cooled and revived by the sea. He went over to his suitcase and took out white linen bathing trunks and a dark blue pyjama coat. As he went downstairs and passed across the front of the house, he thought of Vesper, but refrained from looking up to see if she was still standing at the window. When he was out of sight of the inn, he threw off his pyjama coat and took a short run and a quick flat dive into the small waves. 
The beach shelved quickly, and he kept underwater as long as he could, feeling the soft coolness all over him. Then he surfaced and brushed the hair out of his eyes. It was nearly seven, and the sun had lost much of its heat. When he came ashore nearly a mile down the bay, he knew he had time to lie on the hard sand and dry before the tide of dusk reached him. He gazed up at the empty blue sky and thought of Vesper. His feelings for her were confused, and he was impatient with the confusion. They had been so simple. He had intended to sleep with her as soon as he could, because he desired her and also because he wanted coldly to put the repairs to his body to the final test. But somehow she had crept under his skin, and over the last two weeks his feelings had gradually changed. There was something enigmatic about her, which was a constant stimulus. Naked, Bond lay and tried to push away the conclusions he read in the sky. He turned his head and looked down the beach and saw that the shadows of the headland were almost reaching for him. He stood up and walked back along the beach. He slipped on the light coat and walked on to the hotel. At that moment, his mind was made up. Bond dressed in a white shirt and dark blue slacks. He was pleased when Vesper appeared in the doorway, wearing a blue linen shirt which had faded to the colour of her eyes. I couldn't wait. I was famished. My room's over the kitchen and I've been tortured by the wonderful smells. She took his hand and together they went downstairs and out onto the terrace. Champagne stood on a plated wine cooler beside their table and Bond poured out two full glasses. They looked at each other. Bond is betrayed. It seems the true enemy is much closer to home than he realises. Alex Jennings concludes the spy classic. Bond awoke in his own room at dawn. He got quietly out of bed and crept past Vesper's door and out of the house to the beach. For a time he swam and drifted, and then when the sun seemed hot enough, he came into the beach and lay on his back and reveled in the body which the night had given back to him. As on the evening before, he stared up into the empty sky and saw the same answer there. That day he would ask Vesper to marry him. As he walked quietly from the terrace into the half-darkness of the still-shuttered dining room, he was surprised to see Vesper emerge from the glass-fronted telephone booth near the front door and softly turn up the stairs towards their rooms. Vesper, he called, thinking she must have had some urgent message which might concern them both. She turned quickly, a hand up to her mouth. For a moment longer than necessary, she stared at him, her eyes wide. Oh, she said breathlessly, you made me jump. It was only, I was just telephoning to Mattis, to Mattis, she repeated. I wondered if you could get me another frock, you know, from that girlfriend I told you about, the Vendeurs. You see, she talked quickly, her words coming out in a persuasive jumble. I've really got nothing to wear. Oh, is the water nice? Have you bathed? You ought to have waited for me. It's wonderful said Bond, deciding to relieve her mind, though irritated with her obvious guilt over this childish mystery. You must go in, and we'll have breakfast on the terrace. I'm ravenous. I'm sorry I made you jump. He put his arm round her, 
but she disengaged herself and moved quickly on up the stairs. That was the end of the integrity of their love. It seemed fantastic to Bond that human relationships could collapse into dust overnight, and he searched his mind again and again for a reason. He felt that Vesper was just as horrified as he was. At luncheon that day, things got worse. Directly they sat down, he apologized gaily for having startled her at the telephone booth, but Vesper avoided Bond's eyes. All of a sudden her fork fell with a clatter onto the edge of her plate. She had gone as white as a sheet, and she was looking over his shoulder with terror in her face. Bond turned and saw that a man had just taken his place at a table on the opposite side of the terrace, well away from them. He seemed, ordinary enough, perhaps rather somberly dressed. It's the man in the car, she said in a stifled voice. The man who was following us. I know it is. Bond looked again over his shoulder. The man seemed to realize that he was being watched. Bond noticed that he had a black patch over one eye. He turned back to Vesper. Really, darling, he looks very innocent. He tried to reason with her, but she paid no attention. After glancing once or twice over his shoulder with eyes that held a curious submissiveness, she said that she would spend the afternoon in her room. She walked indoors without a backward glance. A few minutes later, the man asked for the bill and left. When the patron came back, Bond casually asked about the other customer. The patron answered that the man was Swiss, a traveller in watches. He had said that he would be passing that way again in a day or two and would take another meal at the auberge. It was shocking to have only one eye. It is indeed very sad, said Bond. Then he rose. By the way, he said, Madame had an early telephone call, which I must remember to pay for. Paris, an Elysee number, I think, he added, remembering that that was Mattis's exchange. Oh, thank you, monsieur. The exchange mentioned a call to Paris. Uh, but let me see. It was an invalid number the exchange referred to. On Sunday, the man with the black patch was back again. Bond knew it directly he looked up from his lunch and saw Vesper's face. She left her lunch in the middle and went straight to her room. He made up his mind. When he had finished, he followed her. Both her doors were locked, and when he made her let him in, he saw that she'd been sitting in the shadows by the window, watching, he presumed. Vesper, he said, holding her cold hands in his. We can't go on like this. Either you must tell me what all this is about, or we must leave. At once. She said nothing, and her hands were lifeless in his. My darling, he said, won't you tell me? Do you know, that first morning, I was coming back to ask you to marry me. Can't we go back to the beginning again? At first she said nothing. Then a tear rolled slowly down her cheek. You mean you would have married me? Bond nodded. Oh, my God, she said. My God. She turned and clutched him, pressing her face against his chest. He held her closely to him. Her sobs became quieter. Leave me a little, she said, and a new note had come into her voice. 
a note of resignation. I must have time to think. That evening, most of the gayness and intimacy of their first night came back. Some of her laughter sounded brittle, but Bond was determined to fall in with her new mood. Give me some more champagne, she said. She gave a queer little laugh. I want a lot more. They sat and drank together until the bottle was finished. Then she got to her feet. She knocked against her chair and giggled. Come up quickly, she said. I want you badly tonight. She blew a kiss at him and was gone. For two hours they made slow, sweet love in a mood of happy passion, which the day before Bond would never have thought they could regain. When he finally rose and bent to kiss her eyes and her mouth good night, she reached out and turned on the light. Look at me, she said, and let me look at you. He knelt beside her. Her deep blue eyes were swimming with tears as she drew his head slowly towards her and kissed him gently on the lips. Good night, my dearest love, she said. Bond walked to his room with a full heart. The patron burst into Bond's room holding an envelope in front of him as if it was on fire. There has been a terrible accident. Madame, Bond hurled himself out of bed. Vesper's door was open. The sunlight through the shutters lit up the room. Only her black hair showed above the sheet, and her body under the bedclothes was straight and moulded like a stone effigy on a tomb. Bond fell on his knees beside her and drew back the sheet. She was asleep, she must be. Her eyes were closed. And yet she was so still. No movement, no pulse, no breath. That was it. There was no breath. Later, the patron came and touched him on the shoulder. He pointed at the empty glass beside her, and on the floor an empty bottle of sleeping pills. Bond rose to his feet and shook himself. The patron was holding out the letter towards him. He took it and walked blindly away. He sat on the edge of his bed and gazed out of the window at the peaceful sea. Then he turned the envelope over and opened it. After the first few words, he read quickly, the breath coming harshly through his nostrils. Then he threw the letter down on the bed, as if it had been a scorpion. My darling James, I love you with all my heart, and I hope you still love me, because now, with these words, this is the last moment that your love will last. I am a double agent for the Russians. I was taken on a year after the war, and I have worked for them ever since. I was in love with a Pole in the RAF. Until you, I still was. After the war he was trained by M and dropped back into Poland. They caught him, and by torturing him they found out a lot and also about me. They came after me and told me he could live if I would work for them. He knew nothing of this, but he was allowed to write to me. The letter arrived on the 15th of each month. I couldn't bear the idea of a 15th coming round without his letter. I tried to give them as little as possible. You must believe me about this. Then it came to you. I told them you had been given this job at Royal, what your cover was, and so on. 
That was why they knew about you before you arrived and why they had time to put the microphones in. They suspected Le Chiffre, but they didn't know what your assignment was except that it was something to do with him. That was all I told them. Then I had to stage that kidnapping. But when I found out what had been done to you, I decided I couldn't go on. By that time, I had begun to fall in love with you. They wanted me to find out things from you while you were recovering, but I refused. I was controlled from Paris. I had to ring up an invalide number twice a day. They threatened me, and finally they withdrew my control, and I knew my lover in Poland would have to die. But they were afraid I would talk, I suppose, and I got a final warning that Smirsch would come for me if I didn't obey them. Then I saw the man with the black patch. I knew it would be the end of our love if I told you. I realized that I could either wait to be killed by Smirsch, or I could kill myself. There it is, my darling love. It's late now, and I'm tired, and you're just through two doors. But I've got to be brave. You might save my life, but I couldn't bear the look in your dear eyes. Bond threw the letter down. Mechanically, he brushed his fingers together. Suddenly, he banged his temples with his fists and stood up. Then he cursed aloud, one harsh obscenity. His eyes were wet, and he dried them. With a set, cold face, he walked down and shut himself in the telephone booth. While he was getting through to London, he calmly reviewed the facts of Vesper's letter.